Hello and welcome to Talking Scared. I'm your host, Neil McRobert, and this week we're visiting friends in the country. Our guest is Charlotte Northedge, who's joining me to talk about her second novel, The People Before. It's a twisty thriller chiller about a metropolitan couple who leave London for the good life in a rambling old country house, only to find, shock, horror, (laughs) that not all is well in the provinces. That's a baseline synopsis. Trust me, though, there's a lot more to this book than back cover copy would suggest. Quite aside from the novelty of being my second British guest in a row, Charlotte also brings the extra frisson of her role as head of books for the Guardian newspaper. Now, as you'll hear, that makes her very well equipped to talk about a whole lot of fiction, not just her own. She's great at establishing a tradition of which her book is just a part. On top of that, we talk about the unique nature of the female gothic, domestic terrors, the economics of haunted houses, and we debate which is scarier, the countryside or the city. And I stand by my argument that rural axe murderers are fairly rare. Remember, you can get bonus content and support this show by joining Talking Scared Patreon. The link's in the show notes, or just go to patreon.com slash talkingscaredpod, and all contributions are massively appreciated. Now though, off we go to a quieter part of the country, where the air is cleaner, life is slower, and houses are bigger. But who knows what lurks inside them? Let's talk scared. Well, hello, Charlotte, and thanks for joining me on Talking Scared. How are you today? I'm very good, thanks. Thanks for having me. I speak to a lot of people from the world of books on this show. Obviously, every week they are experts in their own fiction, and they're often extremely knowledgeable about the genre as a whole. But you're head of books for The Guardian, which may make you the the single most qualified person I've ever spoken to for Talking Scared. So, yeah, consider me on (laughs) the back foot. Oh, no pressure. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no no pressure at all. You just you you now have to have an, an encyclopedic knowledge of all things literary, that that's all. <laughs> I'll do my best. I'm sure. Perhaps if we get time we can dip a toe into the editorial side of your life, but in the main, let's talk about the book that you yourself have written. It's your second novel, your sophomore effort as my transatlantic listeners would say. It's called The People Before and it came out on November 10th. Can you tell us a little bit about it before we start? Yeah, of course. So um, it's about a couple called Jess and Pete who move from London to a remote house in the Suffolk countryside. And from almost the moment they arrive, Jess feels really unsettled. She feels as though someone's watching them. She's convinced of it. She sees kind of movements in the dark and she She's gone from this really bustling, busy lifestyle in Walthamstow to being out in a field in in the middle of nowhere. Um, And her husband, Pete, dismisses her fears, but she has this real sense that something isn't right about the house. Um, And then she learns a dark secret about it that makes her kind of question everything and wonder whether whether she's been aware of the presence that only she can feel or whether she's imagining it, or she kind of feels like she's going mad. Yes, and for a lot of the book, we we don't know we don't know where any of this is going, and and much like the 
Cat Ward episode I did for Needless Street. This is a book which really does demand us to walk a fine line to not spoil too much. (laughs) So they're, they're always fun episodes to do. They keep me on my feet. But yeah, here we go. I often begin these conversations by inquiring about inspirations and and that usually is a kind of open-ended question but I'm going to ask you much more directly yeah (laughs) have you left London for the countryside recently well it's funny you should ask that um I actually didn't leave for the countryside but it was inspired by my personal life I have to admit we my husband and I lived in in North London um, for a long time and debated moving out of London for most of that time. I didn't really want to go and he did. And he was very, very keen to move to the countryside. And having lived in the countryside, I didn't want to go back. So that was kind of the seed of the idea was me exploring all my worst fears about what it would be like to move to the middle of nowhere and have to give up my job, which I loved, and what effect all of that would have on us and on me. And we didn't. We moved to a town. Um, we live quite in, quite centrally in the town with lots of shops and bars and restaurants and neighbours. So it's really just being a bit further away from London than we were. But we didn't go for the rural escape in the end. Right. OK. But that worry that you mentioned definitely comes through because this book reads like, if not an authentic experience, at least a really authentic fear and anxiety. Yeah. Yeah. And actually, it stems as well from being younger. I I grew up in North London. um, And then when I was 11, my family moved to the countryside. And we had a kind of dark wood behind our fairly big garden. And I used to, I found it really scary. I think going from being surrounded by houses and people and buses and neighbours to being somewhere quite remote really left its mark on me. See, that's interesting, right? Because this has come up a lot on this podcast recently. It's been a bit of a running trend in the autumn episodes, this idea of, you know, the the urban-rural divide. And you're the first British author I've spoken to about it. And, And I've talked on the podcast previously about how I have an affinity with with that divide but with them I've been speaking to American authors who you know the, the the experiences don't quite map in the same way but I assume yours and mine will much more because I grew up in the countryside and then moved to all kind of different urban places Glasgow Manchester Geneva at one point and then I'm back in the countryside about 11 miles from where I was born and and I love it but I, I think I'm quite the oddity in that regard yeah, so you don't find it terrifying to look out into a into the black night? No, and it's something that fascinates me, this idea that people find the countryside frightening, because I I find urban spaces way more frightening. And I, and I wonder, we'll get to this in a bit more, whether that's a gendered response. That's really interesting. My husband and I have had this conversation many times, because he, similarly to you, finds it much more relaxing being away from everyone and being out in the middle of nowhere. Whereas I like to have other people around. And I think that is a a, fem- a male female thing. Often it's kind of feeling safe because there's other people you could call on if you needed to. Yeah. And I also think like my, my wife is constantly terrified that 
people going to invade our home and, and, and all that. And when I, I go running on the moors behind my house all the time and she's Oof. convinced I'm going to be going to be murdered, I'm always like, why would an axe murderer be waiting on the moors in the rain on a, on a Thursday night? You know, whereas as a guy, when you're walking through Manchester Piccadilly, you're like, I could get beat up at any moment if I just look at someone the wrong way. Yeah. I feel like I'm in my castle in my house. I feel completely safe, no, no matter how many people are around or not, whereas crowds worry me. But like you, Jess, your protagonists, finds the dirt and the noise and, in my eyes, the claustrophobia of the city quite comforting. And it's completely at odds with the idyllic idea of peace and quiet and, and fresh air. And I always find it interesting how literature and, and kind of spooky literature, gothic literature, treats those two spheres, you know. It's really interesting how you get this literature that just, just thinks the countryside is full of murderers. Well, I guess it's it's maybe not even so much that it's full of them, but if there are if they're there, what do you do? Who do you call? You know, it's that sense of isolation and being completely at the mercy of someone or of the elements or you know I don't know if you read The Fell by Sarah Moss which was her kind of lockdown novel and there's just something really terrifying about this situation that she sets up about this woman going out on a walk on the moors and you know she's on her own she hasn't got her phone she you know it's like and something happens and it's that terror of being completely abandoned in a situation I think. Yeah, away from the, the network of civilization. Yeah. Yeah. Well, which which brings us, I suppose, to genre. We've talked quite obliquely there about the book, but I think few people would call the people before horror. It wouldn't sit in the horror section of the bookshop, I don't think, but it is it is creepy and it, it's it's quite unnerving for a whole range of different reasons. I'd say it's a kind of contemporary gothic. But I'm wondering, where does it sit for you in your mind? In aesthetic terms, forget marketing for a moment. In, in aesthetic terms, where would, it, where would it sit for you? Yeah, well, I wanted to explore that kind of gothic feeling and gothic themes, but in a contemporary setting. Um, and I'm also really interested in the female gothic. And I mean, things like The Yellow Wallpaper mm -hmm. by Charlotte Perkins Gilman and, and these authors who use female psychological studies to explore the relationship between the home and domestic fears and family, but also there are ghostly elements to them. So I was interested in all of that, but, but putting it in a, in a contemporary setting. Well, I, I have noticed that your previous book, which I'm yet to read, The House Guest, and a recent article you wrote for The Guardian, it, it does seem to imply that you have a very strong interest in domestic spaces. Um, and in, in particular, I suppose, female competition for those spaces, which becomes a, a very much a theme in The People Before. Do you agree? Is that something that you're consciously interested in? Yeah, I mean, I'm definitely consciously interested in female domestic settings. I I hadn't really formulated the idea that it's about competition in my mind, but I think you're right, it is. Um, and I'm not, I don't, I'm not really sure why that is. But I like the set, the idea that a woman might be, well, I, I wanted to explore what it feels like to feel out of control 
in your domestic setting. Okay, and talk to me a little bit about the domestic thriller or the domestic gothic or these phrases that are used because it's it's not something I know all that much about. I mean, I, I know there's quite a rich tradition all the way from the start of the gothic and people like De Maurier and Shirley Jackson, but in in a contemporary guise, I I haven't read much of it. Where 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 does it all fit this stuff with with what you're trying to do? I suppose I first became aware of it reading Northanger Abbey by Jane Austen. And I don't think I really understood the kind of context of that at the time. But then having read more Gothic literature since then, just being aware of how these authors use supernatural or or a sense of exalted kind of heightened emotions to explore that kind of boundary between sanity and reality and and the kind of question mark around whether these supernatural events are actually happening. So, I mean, one one example that I wrote about in my article for The Guardian was um, Shirley Jackson's The Haunting of Hill House. Mm-hmm. Um, and in that, you know, the, I think it, there are definitely supernatural happenings you know writing appears on walls and doors slam and you can they can hear this group of people who've gone to this supposedly haunted house hear laughter up and down the halls and things like that but there's also a very big question mark about how much is actually in the mind of the central protagonist and um and I think that that's something that is kind of explored in a lot of these novels, which is, you know, women are often questioned, their sanity is questioned, they're not believed, and then they start to doubt themselves. And similarly, in the yellow wallpaper, there's a lot of ambiguity. There's a woman who's kind of shut away by her husband to to recover after childbirth and kind of postnatal depression, as we would call it now, although they didn't then. Um, and there's a question mark about, you know, is is there something strange happening in this room? Is she losing her mind? Is it a, a response to the patriarchal society and and the constraints put upon her? And and I'm interested in all of that in a contemporary context because I think that there still are a lot of constraints on women's lives in certain situations and circumstances, and that that the responses can still be the same. I get that, but I wonder. When I'm thinking about Perkins Gilman's Yellow Wallpaper or, or Northanger Abbey or or even going back to Rebecca, which which to me is always kind of like the urtext of yeah, domestic yeah. gothic. Um it must be tougher now to write a scenario in which in which a woman is so self-doubting and so belittled and, and so unlistened to, because we would like to think at least that that isn't the case that the you know the fight back against the patriarchy has moved on at least a little bit oh yeah of course and I mean it's not you know I'm not saying that Jess in the people before situation is similar to Rebecca or Mm -hmm. similar to um the narrator in the yellow wallpaper but I think it's interesting that despite how much things have moved on and how much has changed there are still those kind of central questions that I think a lot of women go through, particularly once they have children. And in Jess's case in the novel, the questions are around, well, you know, if if we're going to move somewhere that's more conducive to having a family, then who gives up their job? And generally, when that happens, it is the woman who gives up their job. 
And then if you give up your job, what, where, how do you form your identity? Who, who are your connections with? You know, do you have to fit into a group of women who are only friends because they all have happen to have children? And you know, so it's it's a different perspective on all of those decisions that you have to go through as a woman. And obviously, you don't have to. You could just stay near your work and not give up work. But I'm just kind of exploring what can happen when people have to make those decisions. Oh, completely. Yeah. I just wondered if it was harder now to write that story. Is it is it tougher to, you know, the simplicity of that feels like it's gone away a little bit because the women aren't, oh, I'm getting myself into a right hole here. I'm, asking, <laughs> I'm not articulate enough. What I mean is like, you know, Du Maurier writing the narrator in Rebecca, it's not unquestioned that she would just be completely ignored or that, you know, Jane Eyre would be completely ignored and that that self-doubt would creep in. What I suppose I'm asking is, today, is it tougher to write such a self-doubting character? Or has, I suppose, have we internalised women's empowerment a, a bit more that someone experiencing these things would back themselves a little bit more? Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. And yes, I accidentally called her Rebecca, but the second Mrs De Winter um, would... I don't know. I mean, would that character exist today? I think she might do. I mean, the, the whole point is that she is an extremely young, inexperienced woman who meets a much older, much more confident, worldly, wealthy man and is kind of feels completely in awe of him, in his orbit, jealous of his first wife. I think you could you could transplant that to the present day. I'm not saying that she, that the society around her would treat her in exactly the same way, but I think that those power dynamics still exist, um, and also that that you know there are ways of exploring them today that feel fresh. I'm glad you, you mentioned the word identity before, because as well as being a thriller and a mystery and, uh, you know, a gothic, I would actually say more than any of those, the people before struck me as a character study. And, and it, it, to my eyes, it's about a, a woman who is stripped of her, her identity, or about all the parts of her that aren't like the core components of, of mother and wife. And it feels like it's sort of about the emptiness and the pressure of being and I put this in quotation marks, just a mother and a wife. Is that fair? Yeah, no, I think I think that was all stuff that I wanted to explore. And I know that lots of women are very happy being mothers and wives and that that's very much an identity in itself. But I just want, I wanted to kind of look at what happens if you're forced to make that decision or you feel you are, and then also you're in this kind of very kind of remote location and how, you know, how do you reconstruct your identity in that situation? There's this great quote that I highlighted where you write, the inescapable fact of motherhood is that none of your decisions, your moods, your anxieties are ever just about you. There's a whole fleet of small ships that need to keep sailing. And that got me thinking about whether the experience of moving to a creepy house would be intrinsically <laughs> different for, for a woman 
because of those responsibilities because that that difference does seem central to the genre in the way that characters respond to the situation yeah in in this scenario i'm exploring a particular relationship which is not my own or necessarily you know a universal experience it does so in this relationship the man earns more and so pete earns more so jess is the one who gives up her job and that often is the case but not always but i think if you're looking at a more traditional breakdown of family duties then a mother does often feel responsible for everybody's moods and i think there's there's another term that i think i did use in the book which is um the domestic load which is this this idea that even if you're dividing up the chores and and you're kind of making sure that things are equally distributed in the household women do often find themselves being the one to remind everybody that things need doing, that birthday cards need buying, that people have got to be taken to this event. And and, and that in itself, it's something that takes up your brain. And I guess as somebody who became a mother, who was also trying to write creatively and who had a very um, busy job, that was something I struggled with. And I was interested in exploring how women cope with the demands the competing demands in that way yeah for a a book that is about such scary things there's quite a lot of time spent on the minute terrors of everyday life and the minute pressures of being sort of the school gates and no one speaking to you and and feeling like you're failing at being the perfect mother and that load is the word because it does feel like it's a weight that accrues on on jesse's shoulders And, and i felt it reading about her like this real just accretion of pressure. Yeah, but I think that's also because, you know, you can write the scariest scenario, but if you don't feel invested in the characters, then you're not going to feel the fear. So you kind of, you know, to me, the books I like are really character-driven, that you really feel you identify with the characters and then and then you can't help but live through the situation with them. And that's what makes it so terrifying. I'm just thinking, one of the things my wife always says, and this book puts this front and centre. So my wife has always earned the money in our house. I'm just, I mean, I'm, I'm a quintessential writer with no elbows in my sweatshirt, you know, and she's, <laughs> she's off being like a finance whiz and paying, like keeping a roof over our heads and all sorts of stuff. She's recently just quit and become an apprentice aircraft designer. But up until now, mm-hmm. she was like, you know, the high flyer. And she always says that it doesn't matter that she does all that, that she works harder. If people come around our house and there is something that isn't right or something that isn't clean, it will be her that people judge, not me. Even yeah. people that know I'm home all day, yeah, the judgment will still be placed on her. And yeah. it feels like, again, that domestic load, that's what you build up in this to a point of almost madness. Yeah, and if you have children, then the school calls the mother if the children are ill, even if the dad's the one at home and I think it's those that kind of feeling of responsibility and then putting yourself and your family in a situation that you suddenly feel isn't safe that's a kind of a scary prospect I think and when you feel you're at risk but also you're trying to protect your children and they're potentially at risk as well 
that's where the the fear comes from for me. Yeah, definitely. Um, there is a lot I want to ask about Jess, but I don't I don't want to move on into that and then not just mention the spooky stuff because <laughs> it's it's oh, important yeah. Yeah. that my listeners need the spooky stuff. <laughs> so this house. I mean, the, the Maple House, even the name alone, The Maple House, just giving it the the makes it creepy. It's like a, an edifice that everyone knows about. I would go so far as to say that the people before is a haunted house story, even if it doesn't have ghosts. Or does it? Well, or does it? <laughs> but do you agree? Do, do you think it matters at all whether there is a ghost or not in that house? I mean, that's one of the things I wanted to explore because I think that ghost stories are so compelling. I wrote an article for The Guardian about this, about the kind of contemporary ghost story, which to my mind uses a lot of the trappings of traditional ghost stories, but in a context where the majority of readers now probably don't believe in ghosts or are much more sceptical. So then it's a question of, you know, how do you create that kind of ambiguity and that fear in people who maybe instinctively just don't believe in in the supernatural? So, yeah, I think that was something I was definitely trying to explore. In the article for The Guardian, you reference Joe Hill in saying, you know, it's not houses that are haunted, it's people. Yeah, I love that quote. For me, all the great ghost stories, not even contemporary, all of them um, have that at their core. So, you know, you look House of Usher all the way to Daniel Lewski's House of Leaves by way of Hill House and the Overlook Hotel. Yeah. That great canon of, of haunted space stories are always in the end about the people in the spaces. Yeah. So when I was writing that article, I reread The Turn of the Screw. Um, by Henry James, which I remember reading when I was quite young and read it as a just as a pure ghost story and found mm -hmm. it really scary. You know, this governess goes to look after these children and sees apparitions appearing all over, you know, a man and a woman appearing around the house. And and again, it's that set, sense of kind of feeling she's trying to protect the children from them. But actually rereading it and reading about it, more about it, I realised, you know, there could be a completely different reading of that story, which is there are no ghosts and the, the governess is mad mm -hmm. because nobody else actually can see the ghosts. You know, that you have no evidence that they're there, these, these apparitions that she sees. And it's similar in The Haunting of Hill House that, you know, a lot of the terrifying things are very subjective it's that line between what can be proven, what what is what actually exists and what is in the mind. And what you find in a lot of those stories is that the women ultimately lose their minds. And they are often women than the ones I was looking at anyway, um, who are kind of driven to distraction by this, by being able to see and, and experience things that other people either can't see or or doubt um and i think that that is part of the terror am i going mad is it is it really there can anybody else see it um and i and, I, and that's what i took from the joe hill quote yeah and you use a great quote of your own th things that go bump in the mind um which sounds like it should be the title of 
an academic thesis with a colon <laughs> after it. it. It got me thinking about very British ghost stories because I do still think there is a difference between British and American ghost stories. That that's being really chauvinistic and and pretending the rest of the world doesn't have their own ghost stories. But let, let's face it, they are the two main sort of you know markets, I suppose. Um, and your book feels very essentially British, if not very essentially English. Um, because excuse the half pun, but you just keep turning the screw <laughs> on Jess in this novel. It's a book of remorseless discomfort and, and disappointment. There's a Christmas pie that goes wrong, an awkward pub lunch, a catastrophic dinner party. And in many ways, it, it feels like you've written the gothic version of a novel of manners, and it feels very, very English. Yeah, yeah, I can see that. I mean, I hadn't thought about it, obviously, when I was writing, but I would, obviously you write from your own experience, and I wouldn't, I wouldn't feel I could write an American set story because I just don't, I'm not familiar enough with it. But I just, I find that world really fascinating, the kind of um, middle-aged, I guess, you know, 40s, middle-class kind of, you know, scenarios that, um, that people can feel like they're fa- that they're failing at. Mm-hmm. And I think that's Jess's experience that she's going through all of these situations and that every turn she's, she's just not fulfilling the role that she should be. But it, very much so, but it is remorseless. Like you, you do not give this poor woman a break at any point. It's like every, <laughs> she, she leaves London and every aspect of her life just becomes dreadful. Yeah. <laughs> um, and it, it's just like an oppressive experience that she has. And this gets into kind of the, the, the female gothic and the idea of subjectivity and the idea of, you know, can can we trust the narrative voice? Can she trust herself? But how much of it is that bad? And, and how much of it is it that, that Jess is perhaps not the most reliable narrator? Oh, I definitely wanted to explore... I mean, in both my novels, I've explored the unreliable narrator, and I've, I'm I'm fascinated by unreliable narrators. And m- most of my favourite stories have that aspect in them that um, you don't know who to believe or trust. There is, you know, later in the book, other perspectives, and you can you kind of start to question how much she's a victim of her situation and and how much she's created it and and she's also escaping things you know in her past in london so definitely i i think it's it's kind of a study in how things how quickly things can unravel when you start to doubt yourself and start to lose grip on your own kind of perception of reality yes and i i do wonder <laughs> What would it take for you to think, no, that's it, I'm out of here? (laughs) And I ask that because you write this great intro, like a really cool prologue, which is about like things seen from the corner of the eye and all those things we experience, but like, you know, doubt up to the max. And there's just enough doubt in Jess throughout that she stays. And it's, it's a subject that fascinates me. In, 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 like, in real life, what would it actually take for someone to just go, no, I'm checking into a hotel, 
this place is wrong. But that's also what I wanted to look at because, you know, the financial reality is that you can get yourself into a situation that you can't escape. And I guess that was part of my personal investigation in in my into my psyche was, you know, if if we give up everything and move to the countryside, what happens if it if a, if it goes wrong? You know, what do you then do because you've put all of your life savings into this house, and and that's the situation that they're in. That they've they've can't they can't afford to leave the house, and they can't sell the house um, for reasons that become obvious quite quickly, and so they are trapped there, or she they certainly feel trapped there. And money is the unspoken kind of thing in almost all modern haunted house stories. I mean, you know, everything from Amityville Horror to like that recent Netflix thing, The Watcher, you know, negative equity is a far (laughs) greater curse than any plague pit or native burial ground. (laughs) There's a brilliant anecdote actually from Stephen King. I, I think I mentioned this before on the show, but he talks about his mother watching the Amityville Horror in the cinema with him. Says and he he was watching it and like scared out of his mind at you know the ghosts and things. He says and, and he just, she was murmuring under her breath and all he kind of said what you're saying and he realised she was just saying, oh god the mortgage, oh god the mortgage over and over <laughs> again. And and by by Christ do you kind of wind that again like the turn of the screw of that the the anxiety of the of the money they're dumping into this house. It, it's a, a really strange book in that sometimes the, the, the quotidian becomes actually more frightening than, than what may be buried under in the garden or whatever. Yeah, it's like the worst ever episode of Grand Designs. That's what it's I kept like... thinking. I kept thinking, where is is it Nick Knowles, whatever he's called? Like, where are these people to just come and fix this? He needs an ITV crew to come and sort things out. <laughs> well, I was just, I was interested in, you know, it, in making a situation that felt real. And I think that's what a lot of um, domestic noir now does is create a situation that feels like something that could happen to you. And then you have to kind of work through what you would actually, what would you Mm. do? And I mean, there's one example is the Louise Candlish book, Our House, where she comes home to find another family moving into her house and I was just thinking of it when you were talking about the kind of the mortgage terror, like that plays very much on that fear that you've got some, you've you've got this kind of life that you've created and you could lose it in an instant and there's nothing you can do to get it back. Um, and it's actually very gripping that, you know, what do you do? What would you do? Well, you haven't answered my question. What would you do? What what would it take for you to think, right, I'm not staying here. This is just too much. Would it take literally seeing a ghost at the foot of your bed? And even then? God, if it was me, I think I'd be out there. I'm, I'm a bit of a wuss. I'd probably be out there pretty quickly um, if I could afford to be. Mm. But um, obviously that wouldn't make such an interesting story. No. Although, what if you, you know a house is haunted and you still can't leave? That is a, yeah. that's a truly terrifying notion. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And also, I think there's the endless discussions that people have. And I don't think this is unique to London, that any couple who lives in a city with young children will have the conversation endlessly with their friends and the other parents at the school about whether or not they're going to move out 
of the city to bring up their children. And there's this idea that, you know, it's life so much better in the suburbs or in the village or, you know, and so there's also a question of saving face. You know, you've made the move, you've gone out to do the the new life, you've got this dream place that you want to show off to all your friends and actually you get there and it's a, it's a total nightmare. I mean, we, we've talked a lot kind of around the edges of this because as, as I said at the start, it's a really difficult book to discuss without giving major spoilers and I, I don't intend to. So I'm going to say this in the, in the vaguest way possible. There is a massive, massive shift in the middle of this book that unsettles everything that you think you know up to that point. Did you know you were going to do that? Was that was it this was that a plotted hinge or was that something that you came up with on the fly? No, I did know I was going to do that. I want I wanted to do it. I really like books where there's a big twist. Um and I wanted to kind of lure the reader into thinking it was one kind of book and then take it in a different direction. So yeah, I had planned that mm. from the beginning. Because it, it gave me the same sort of level of gasp as the, there's another spoiler I don't want to do in case there's one person in the world who hasn't read it, but there is a point in Gone Girl, um, which is a similar thing. It completely shifts what you think the parameters of this story are. Um, and I, I was I was similarly kind of taken aback in, in the people before because I thought I had an idea where it was going. And there was a certain character enters the fray who seems to not be entirely what she appears to be. But I had no idea that it was going to go the way it went. Good. <laughs> and, to, and, and to continue being vague, the way it ends, you definitely transgress what... I expected the kind of thriller trajectory of this to be. It ends on a very different tone, a much, you could say, quieter tone than I expected. I was thinking it'd be something like a sort of 90s psychodrama that ends in people being murdered in baths and stuff like that. But it <laughs> it, it, it takes a different sort of, maybe quieter isn't the right, right term. I don't know what, what the right term would be, but yeah, do you know what I mean? It takes a different pared down tone to what I expected. Yeah, I know I know exactly what you mean. I I guess I when I started writing quite a few years ago, um I wasn't consciously writing in a thriller genre. I was just I started writing my first novel, The House Guest, just because there I wanted to tell the that story. And then it kind of it ended up fitting into a thriller genre. But I think similarly, the ending was less resolved than thrillers often are. Um, and and I suppose I like books that are somewhat open-ended. I like I like the feeling of being left at the end of a novel with questions that kind of eat away at me and make me keep thinking about it. And I have a real allergy to books that take you through I mean and obviously I there are different genre conventions and I'm I've was a, I've always been a big Agatha Christie fan for example and and there are those kind of and then this is exactly how the plot worked and that's what happened there but that wasn't what I was trying to do um because I quite like things to be a bit more um ambiguous mm. yeah and it, and it ends in a way that it probably 
well, the very ending is kind of very, very a nice little sort of oh, it leaves you with a kind of shivery feeling, but. But that's almost a, a, an, an epilogue, like the end of the plot, shall we say, ends in a way that it probably would end in reality. Um, people talking about things as opposed to it all kicking off and being all grand, we know. Um, but it was, it was, it's interesting that you say you weren't originally writing the thriller guys because it does feel more like a piece of realist literary fiction in, in, in resolution, if not in plot all the way through, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think I I I enjoy books that cross that genre divide. I really like um novels that I find kind of compelling as, you know, from a reading and character and narrative and then also have that page turning element. Mm-hmm. That's probably my ideal combination, so I guess that's what I was trying to do. And it keeps you guessing because it's not the ending you expect. It's totally very kind of uncanny because even though it's really realistic to what ha- would happen in life it's it's very different to, to the convention of what you expect to happen in, in that situation in a thriller novel you know um yeah but yeah we won't say any more because it's i don't i, I really don't want to spoil <laughs> things i will finish though by talking about jess herself and i've i've waited for what 40 odd minutes to get to this because i'm always a little reticent to say this to an author but whilst i thoroughly enjoyed reading her i don't think i ever really liked her yeah and this is the part where you tell me she's inspired by your sister or your best friend obviously no (laughs) definitely not no and I and I really I can understand that I mean I didn't dislike her at all I've I've read you know people have said to me and and um that that there are unlikable elements of her um but I I'm not that interested in really nice likable characters. I quite like the complexity of someone who you and it, and it comes back to what we were saying about the you know unreliable narrators and kind of and you know you were using the example of um, Gone Girl or the Girl on the Train. There are those characters where you you recognise them, you relate to them but you don't necessarily you wouldn't do what they're doing mm-hmm. and you don't necessarily always like them and i think that's the most interesting relationship to have to a character you're reading about in some ways i think i was also thinking just then of um notes on a scandal by zoe heller i mean i loved that book i loved the fact that i hated the main character that she was awful and odious but you just couldn't stop reading because she was so compelling and the story she was telling was so compelling absolutely and i just want to be clear that i'm not here talking about the issue of unlikable female characters which is is something that we've tackled to death on this show um yeah and i i get very tired by other commentators on that because of the you know the built-in hypocrisy and and yeah my listeners have heard me go on about this at length already they don't need to hear it again with Jess it's more interesting than that because it's more that I started off feeling really sorry for her then worrying that my my mild distaste for her snobbery and her slight self-obsession was actually me misinterpreting things but then you seem to end the story with quite concrete implications that she isn't really a wonderful person so you say you didn't dislike her but it felt actually quite integral that she was of quite a deeply flawed person because all the things that happened to her yeah some of some things are done to her but a, a lot of her situation in the end 
does seem to be down to her behaviour towards other people who who maybe are not out to do her any harm. Hmm. Interesting. I mean, I yeah, I'm not I didn't victim feel blaming that. here, by the way. Just you know, but... <laughs> yeah. I mean, I didn't feel I didn't end the book writing of the book feeling that she was in the wrong. I mean, that wasn't how I interpreted what I was writing. But I, I, I'm really interested that you you think so. And um, I will think about that. Yeah, the trouble is I can't expand on that without slightly no. spoiling things. But I will talk to you <laughs> off air about it. Um, okay. Yeah, something about her, her attitude to her, her husband in light of certain things. I just found it like, oh, that's actually quite Machiavellian. But let's, I mean, there, there is one bit when Pete is talking to Jess about why she's having trouble making friends in the village. And... He says this yeah. thing that really spoke to me because like, he could have been speaking to me because he says, you assume that we all grew up in London with a lefty English teaching mum spouting feminist politics and handed out improving literature. <laughs> um, and, and I have felt that way growing up in my tiny village where I went away to uni and did English lit and came back and was very pompous about these things. And, and, and f- forgive me if this is an impertinent question, but is, is, is that something you see in yourself? that because it's a privilege I have to reckon with like I say at times is is that you speaking to yourself I mean I do have a lefty mum um and I did go to university and I mean I and I moved out of London when I was a as I said about 11 so I definitely at that point had to think about all of those things and yeah and I'm, I'm just interested having moved out of London and moving to an area and meeting lots of new people and and kind of getting acro- across that kind of divide between locals and newcomers and the idea of being from London and you know there's just a lot of um different perspectives on it and i just wanted to slightly send up that idea that people in london often think <laughs> if they move out of london they'll never meet like-minded people which is obviously completely untrue but it is something that people say or think um it's not how i felt because i knew lots of people who didn't live in london and i knew areas that i was thinking about moving to although i knew i didn't want to move to a house in the middle of nowhere that was a very strong feeling i had but that, that, that was because the axe murderers though right that's that was <laughs> yeah yeah um on that note about different perspectives different points of view outside london i was surprised at how resolutely apolitical the book kind of remained because considering it's about a woman who is the, the definition of, you know, so-called met- metropolitan elite and she moves to the provinces and, and she meets very unlike-minded people, it, it did seem like it would be right for a bit of post-Brexit satire. And then you working for The Guardian, I expected all these people <laughs> to just be absolute gammons, um, but you don't go down that route. No, because I don't think that's true. I mean, I don't think that you move to the countryside and and everybody voted for Brexit. I mean, I think it's much more nuanced than that. And I wanted to kind of, I didn't want to make it about a clash of cultures so much as realising that actually people have got more in common than you think and and you've, it's, you've got to get over your own prejudices. 
Yeah, and I think that's where I'm getting to when I say that by the end, I, I did think some of Jesse's problems were of her own making because you didn't expose these villagers as bumpkins or bigots or they're just normal people who seem perfectly nice and, and make an effort. And Jess often makes people quite uncomfortable, but then she's the one that feels ice. Do you know what I mean? It felt like she Yeah, was- and that's what I wanted to explore. I think it'd be quite predictable if you had a kind of book about someone who moved out to the countryside and everybody was closed-minded and they were, you know... You know, it, what's interesting is the the preconceptions that you have when you move somewhere and how people prove you wrong and how people are much more, you know, it's, people aren't defined by where they live. You know, people's in beliefs and political views and, and it's much more varied mm-hmm. than that. Yeah, it's a, it's, a, it's a much more complex book than the, you know, the... the I think, I think people's expectations will be, you know, because obviously you've got, I know you've got to put sales copy, you've got to put like a, a hooky synopsis on the back and it's got a feel plot driven. But there is a lot going on there about psychology and, and, and people's identity and fitting in and, and all of that stuff. And it's kind of testament to that, that we've barely spoken about the plot today. It kind of leads into a question about your, your other life as editor of The Guardian. Because it does feel like you are blending the the genre potboiler with something more rarefied, and I'm not getting into the the hierarchies of literature at all. <laughs> I, I I wonder how does working for something an entity like the Guardian how does that impact writing your own fiction? Do you feel more prepared? Do you feel more exposed? Do you feel more aware of potential pitfalls? It it, it must have an impact. Oh yeah, definitely does. I mean, I I started writing The House Guest, my first novel, um, long before I became books editor at The Guardian. So I was um, a features journalist at The Guardian, but it felt much more, me writing felt much more removed from what I did in my day job. Um, and then when I was kind of halfway through the very slow process of writing a novel in my evenings and weekends, I then got the job um, as editor of the what was then Guardian Review, the book section, which is now um, the books pages within the magazine, and and suddenly felt much more exposed mm. and much more kind of you know had a lot more questions for myself about what I was writing and why and where it fitted into the market and genres and all of that because obviously what I do in my day job is um, is read about books. I edit the section, so I don't commission the reviews. For example, I I kind of over, I read, I proofread everything, and I and I kind of edit the bigger features. Um, but yeah, I mean, it makes it makes the whole thing take on another layer of um, of yeah, it makes you think about it all a lot more. Yeah, I imagine because I'm I'm sort of mentioning now a a, a hierarchy that I don't myself believe in at all but you know when you think about the the kind of books that the guardian tackle they're often more weighty kind of tomes you know often um often more mainstream literary i mean i i've had more than my share of genre reviews not back by by guardian books <laughs> um and i just wondered I, I i'm kind of hesitating around the question i suppose but i wonder whether you did feel at any point 
um, like you were stepping outside that by writing something that was at least marketed as more of a kind of straightforward thriller. Was that on your mind at all? I mean, I was aware of it. I'd already, I was already quite far down the line with what I was writing when I started working on the book's desk. Um, but also in a way it's, I quite like the fact that it's quite separate because I think if I was writing, um, like kind of straight literary fiction. I mean, certainly The Guardian would never review my book anyway because it's a conflict of interest, but it would feel much more like a crossover if I was writing something that I thought would be in, you know, the kind of thing that we review. And I think the the main reason for the distinction, certainly in terms of The Guardian's books coverage between literary novels and genre novels is partly the the regularity that genre novels are produced. I mean, if you're writing a novel every year or you're publishing a novel every year, then it's it's often just a question of space. Mm -hmm. We couldn't review the same novelist's novel every year. It wouldn't really, you know, the the kind of fiction that is reviewed in The Guardian tends to be, you know, someone will produce a a novel that they've worked on for three or four years and then that has a quite an you know an in-depth review yeah yeah um and then we do obviously cover crime and thrillers and sci-fi and horror but in a kind of roundup mm-hmm. well here's your chance then free of all of those strictures um would you like to recommend a book for my listeners and, and tell us why well, yeah. I mean, I was thinking of a scary book, which really terrified me quite recently, was um, C- Katrina Ward's The Last House on Needless Street. I just found that absolutely fascinating in the way that it it kind of pushed a lot of my buttons in terms of what I found scary, but also impossible to put down and then so interesting. And again, it's a really hard one to talk about without giving anything away. Um but I just found it really clever what she did with with the characters. Yeah, I when I interviewed Kat about that book, I, I had to call the episode something like Katrina Ward and the Impossible Spoiler Warning or something like that. It was just an absolute <laughs> nightmare. I I think that possibly ties with Stephen Graham Jones, The Only Good Indians, as the most kind of recommended book on this show. People love oh, it. Oh, really? Yeah, people really love it. I mean, I liked it too, but I kind of ruined it for myself because I it fell open on the Works Cited page. Oh, no. And when you see yeah. some of the books that are mentioned you kind of get a bit of a sense of where... If, you, if you're a bit genre savvy and you've read a bit, you get a bit of a sense of where it's going. So whilst it was still a surprise, yeah. it wasn't quite as profound a surprise as, as I think it would have been otherwise, which is a shame. Because you're never going to get, get the same experience again, are you? It's a, it's a one-shot thing. No, and I didn't I didn't have a clue. It was because obviously we get proof mm. copies so we can read things before we've seen any reviews. So I had no idea what to expect and it starts off obviously there is there are very disquieting elements from the beginning but there's also quite a kind of um classic tale of um, a young girl gone missing in the woods and you know so you think you know what area you're in and then it just keeps 
turning everything on its head and obviously the talking cat which yeah. just oh. was oh, brilliant yeah. i mean yeah i loved it yeah her, her, her book from this year sundial people say is just as good i haven't read that one yet um no i haven't read it yet but I, it's on my yeah, pile me too. it's been on my shelf for months i just haven't cause basically i can't read anything that i'm not interviewing about and she wasn't on the show this year so i need to find time to catch up with it and get back yeah yeah um, <laughs> my last question charlotte i ask everyone this what truly scares you well, I think it is the kind of classic looking out through a darkened window into the dark and not being able to see anything uh-huh. and imagining someone looking in and watching me. That's that's the ultimate fear I have. Well, I mean, your book does quite a lot of that. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And I mean, it's definitely, you know, comes from living in the countryside and that kind of complete blackness which probably was in contrast to my childhood of being in a city that I just couldn't ever get used to. Well I'm looking out of my loft window right now at the moors behind my house and I'm going to finish this interview I'm going to put my head torch on and go and run in those moors in the pitch black because I'm more scared of the city streets. <laughs> Listen, thank you for your time. Um, your book was the last book I read for this year's Talking Scared. It will be the penultimate episode that goes out, but it was a, a great book to finish on because I think I read it in like two days. It's immensely readable, uh, but yet isn't at all, I think, what people will expect if they come to this for just a, a warts and all kind of bare bolts thriller. There's, there's much more to it. I think people will people would be pleasantly surprised. Um, But Charlotte Northedge, thank you for talking scared. Thank you. It's always interesting when I interpret a book quite differently to the person who wrote it. That sounds like a ridiculous proposition, because after all, how can I know better than them? But as I think I've mentioned before... The French theorist Roland Barthes comes to my rescue. He had a theory called the death of the author, which it serves me pretty well, keeps my ego afloat. Barthes argued, basically, that once a text is finished, its meaning no longer belongs to the creator, and that meaning proliferates and becomes infinitely malleable for each reader, which is a long-winded and pompous way of backing up my claim that Jess, the protagonist in The People Before, is not a very nice person. (laughs) Now that in no way detracts from the story, and nor should it. I was genuinely hooked and kept guessing. Although what I was kept guessing about is interesting, because this book is not so much a whodunit, that's pretty obvious to anyone who's read a lot of twisty chillers. No, the unspoken question is why they are doing it, and that's where the people upstairs has its own story to tell. I'll say no more because, well, I didn't skirt around the plot to that extent only to spoil it now. But The People Upstairs is an interesting hybrid of madcap thrills, really quite madcap. There's a lot of people making quite strange decisions in this book. There's also potential hauntings and frighteningly mundane slice-of-life terrors. Now, I hope you don't mind me not going any further into the secrets of books. I always err on the side of caution with that stuff, but... If you do, as a block, want me to get spoilery, then I suppose unionise and let me know in some communal manner. I'll, I'll leave the admin up to you. Also, get in touch and tell me whether you find the city 
or the countryside more frightening? I find the question genuinely interesting, as you can probably tell, because I keep bringing it up. But surely the city is worse. Surely. It would have to be the most opportune chainsaw murderer who actually caught me out jogging at just that moment. Let me know your thoughts. It's Talk Scared Pod on Twitter, Instagram and TikTok, which I'm not hating quite as much. I've been putting videos out there. I'm quite self-conscious when I do it, and I often feature my dog as a kind of cute diversion. But you can contact me on any of those, or email me directly at talkingscaredpod at gmail.com. I've got quite a few new listeners in the wake of my top horror books of the year article for Esquire. So hello, new people. We're nice here. Get in touch. All the usual support me guff. Subscribe. Please leave a review if you can. I'm actually having meetings with an honest-to-God podcast promotion business who could kind of change the fortunes of this show. So any help you guys throw my way helps that negotiation. And if you want to support directly, you can sign up for Patreon at patreon.com slash talkingscaredpod or through the show notes. There's a brand new episode going live tomorrow all about haunted forests and the lore that lingers there. Next week is the final episode of Normal Proceedings. Don't worry, there'll be episodes all the way to the end of the year. But next week is the last sole author interview. And it's with Philip Fracassi talking about A Child Alone with Strangers. And oh my God, you have to read that book. It's a masterpiece. Until then though, get to know your neighbours, take a windy walk and enjoy a nice big breath of fresh air. Read good books, and remember, it's good to be scared.